Hello, wonderful people. Welcome to the Jake's Hevel Distinguished Fellowship Podcast, where we amplify the voices of recognized educational leaders in South Africa. I'm your host, Carla Watson, former high school teacher and founder of the Distinguished Fellowship, in partnership with the prestigious Mail and Guardian Young 200 Award. Together, we amplify the voices of recognized educational leaders in South Africa. Welcome to our podcast. Good morning, Saseko. Welcome to today's podcast episode. Good morning, Carla, and good morning to the listeners of the podcast, and thank you for having me. I'd love to let our listeners know, Saseko, a little bit more about you. So I'm going to read the bio that you've shared with me today. Kamala Saseko H holds a Master of Arts cum laude in Political Philosophy from the University of Pretoria's Department of Political Science. He received his formative training from Rhodes University, where he read in Political and International Studies, Anthropology and Philosophy. His research and teaching interests center around themes of education, decolonization in the South African academia. He served as the founding editor-in-chief of the Journal of Decolonizing Disciplines, a journal dedicated to decolonizing disciplinary knowledge across faculties in higher education. His research aims to substantively engage indigenous epistemes in the South African University through focusing on the intellectual contributions of indigenous intellectuals, such as S.E.K. Maclay, W.W. Gokoba, and Masizi Kunene. Saseko serves on the Literary Association of South Africa's Executive Committee and is a 2017 Mandela Road Scholar. Sure, Saseko, on the back of a bio like that, it is very clear why you were recognized by the Mail and Guardian Young 200 Award. Can you share a bit about your experience of the award and, and what it might mean to you? What does it mean to me? I think it was a humbling moment, um, and also not only to only get nominated, but also to get onto that list was just incredibly humbling and so overwhelming even. Um, and why do I say that? I say that because I think the people who make that list are really, really cool people um, and who do phenomenal work. And I always say to a lot of folks, I'm just a village boy who just enjoys asking curious questions. And to be elevated to such, and, and the work that we do to be taken with such regard, such that it lands us on such an incredible platform, national platform for me, was humbling and, and also in some respects affirming. Amazing. Thank you, Saseko, for your honesty around the process of receiving this prestigious award and, and what it means to you. I want to take us to your topic for today, focusing on decolonization in higher education governance. How would you describe the importance of higher education governance in South Africa? The founding framework of South African higher education post-apartheid, um, and that is the White Paper 3 of 1997. Um, and I've had, a, I've had an interest in that particular piece of legislation since my honours year at Rhodes University in 2017, my long paper actually for my honours philosophy, uh, my honours philosophy long paper was necessarily a consideration of the White Paper 3 of 1997 
And I believe it was last year that I actually published from my honours research with uh, Higher Education Quarterly, one of the world's leading journals in higher education governance. Um, uh, and, and really that's where the, the interest starts. Um, and the importance that comes up for me in Minister Bengu's forward to that piece of legislation or to that piece of uh, legislative framework policy document, right? So he says that higher education needs to serve the interests of the new and democratic dispensation in South Africa, bridging the injustices of the past, serving a single country, integrating our economy, and in many respects, really serving the local communities where our institutions are located. And in as much as higher education governors, and these are your vice chancellors, deans, and other senior executive managements and administrators attempt and are attempting to achieve that, I think sometimes we get too boxed in by historical hangups and tropes. And what do I mean by that? I mean, the gatekeepers assume their roles and they become gatekeepers and I suppose jettison that particular responsibility of higher education servicing local needs and local demands. Now, why do I say this? Let's look at a very recent example, COVID-19. And we actually had a discussion with this with uh, two colleagues who we're finalizing a project with. Uh, both of them are senior administrators um, in, the CIS, in the sector in, in South Africa. Uh, Professor Liz Langer of UCT, she's the DVC of Academic Affairs uh, at UCT, and Professor Vasu Reddy, who's the Dean of uh, Humanities at UP, at the University of Pretoria. And I said to them, if we think about COVID-19, it actually exposed how insulated higher education has been in this country. And if you think about how higher education and science innovation have now been amalgamated under the Cyril Ramaphosa administration, it showcases that innovation needs to be at the forefront of our institutions. Now, our universities in South Africa have incredible programs in the sciences. They've got incredible natural sciences, in agriculture. Yes. Carla, can you hear me? Hey, Soseko, no problem. The internet fails us just when we need it. Um, welcome back, and, and I'm just going to remind you of where you were at, uh, busy speaking about, so that we can just keep this consistent. You were speaking quite a bit about innovation, and, and I'm, I'm curious to just bring out a little bit more about how would you describe innovation at a higher education level, particularly in the context of COVID-19? Thank you for that question, Carla. So in many respects, COVID-19 really kind of threw us all of our mark and all our, off our game in the sense that we were forced to do what I conceptualize as emergency remote teaching. What do I mean by that? I mean that basically our institutional campuses were shut down, our students had to go home, and we had to teach from our own homes as well. And what we failed to realize in very real ways is the way that is the fact that some of our students come from communities that are in outskirt communities, in outskirt, in outskirt locales, where internet connection is quite bad, right? So when you say emergency remote teaching, emergency online remote teaching, right, the student is, doesn't have the access of waking up from their residence room where they've got hot running water, where they've got breakfast in, in the residence dining halls, where they've got all of these things taken care of and coming to your lecture, say, at 9.35 or whatever time the lecture starts. 
their home, possibly sharing a tiny space um, with incredibly poor infrastructure in terms of connectivity. And, and again, we see this in the Biden administration of the United States, whereby they're saying broadband is the next best move in terms of economic productivity and innovation. So you're sending students away to their various homes. Connectivity is bad. And I'm saying that's a failure on our part as institutions of higher learning. Because, for example, as and I'm, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that these institutions have done that, I'm just, but I'm just using an example. As an example, say, for instance, the University of Johannesburg. And this is ironic because UJ is quite responsive to its, lo- to its local communities and contexts and the research questions that they ask. Say UJ becomes an insular institution or serves an insular approach or insular um, research objectives. They're not looking at the community of Johannesburg and its surrounding communities. They're not thinking about what kind of infrastructure is there. They're not thinking about who are they servicing and what kinds of family contexts and backgrounds they're coming from. And they're just focusing on research questions that the professors come up with and that they drive their insular conversation. Again, that is an ironic situation because UJ is completely the opposite of that. What that ends up doing is that when we send our students home, we send them home to spaces that don't have running water, for instance, hot running water maybe, that don't have thriving economies where their parents would be able to participate in those economies such that they can feed our students in the first instance. We don't have infrastructure, basic infrastructure in terms of fiber optic cables that could be able to carry the signal for us as lecturers to be able to teach our students sitting in in their home environments. And for me, that's a failure on our part as social scientists, humanities and arts scholars in terms of really addressing the questions and the problems that afflict our societies. And there, science and innovation, and we saw this precisely with COVID-19 because those were the challenges we were faced with. Students come, students couldn't come to class. There were questions of ethics in terms of us going into, stu- into students' living environments. Students had to alternate, some sharing beds because they're sharing a one-room space that is the only space that they can get affordably enough. They're sharing the internet and all of these kinds of things. And we have, and that's, I believe, it comes back to us as social science. It comes back to us as higher education because it means that higher education has been serving a very narrowed agenda and a very narrowed perspective in terms of who it responds to and how it responds to those people, not taking into consideration who and why we should be responding to and the methods with, with, with which we do that. And that's the reason why I'm interested in higher education governance, because I think that the, in very real ways, we haven't been able as higher education institutions across the country to really take up the charge of White Paper 3 of 1997 and deliver the demands of what the sector had been envisioned for historically. Yes, ma'am. Sure. So, Seiko, I could listen to you for hours. I, I am intrigued by your position and your positionality on this. When you when you're speaking about innovation, are you how closely are you linking it to decolonization in higher education governance? Can you help me understand what the links are between those two concepts? Sure. Um, the first is to say, in many respects, when traditionally when we think of innovation, we're thinking about people who are working in, I suppose, the digital economy. Uh, we're thinking about people who are. Learning- 
located in metropolitan and cosmopolitan spaces. And we only see those as people who are innovators, right? And where does that come from? That comes from a historical conception that says particular kinds of knowledge are the only knowledge that is valid and holds merit in terms of being used to service social needs and social ends, right? Now, where does decolonization come into that? Decolonization says if you go out into the rural communities, for instance, of KZN, as I am a village boy myself of KZN, if you come out into our rural communities, you're going to find a ton of innovation in the sense of you're going to be seeing people's children, for children, the kids on the streets. The, you know, I used to have a wire car as a kid, uh, and we used to construct those all on our own. Now, with the wire car itself, there's a particular mechanism that you have to that you have to create such that the vehicle that you're driving can be able to move and turn in particular directions, right? With the steering wheel, of course, that is elongated. That mechanism, of course, is created of a wire, and then you have a little sling thing there that then turns your wheels, your front wheels, that then take your vehicle in whichever direction it's going. Now, are you not going to tell me that that's innovation? And again, the vehicle that we have created with mere copper wires are vehicles that we have imagined as children in those communities and that we are then subsequently bringing to life, right? But because we know that a kid is supposed to get a toy car from a fancy store, we're going to buy that from Amazon, that is innovation. And the kid who's able to bring an app that makes your life buying that toy car for your kid most convenient, that's innovation. And I say, actually, that's a very limited and narrow conception of innovation. Because as I say, if you take the wire car that I was driving as a kid, constructed by myself with my own two bare hands, I have to have measurements in mind for that, right? To say, how big has to be the wire for the door? How big does it have to be for the bonnet? If I want, for instance, to spice it up with a bit of some, you know, spoilers and this and that and the other thing, I need to have those measurements in mind. I need to construct this thing using bare wire, discarded wire for that matter, in some instances as well. And here, that for me showcases the incredible ingenuity and innovation that we're failing to tap into because we're using a Eurocentric conception of what innovation means and what it looks like. And so the link between innovation and decolonization, and here I'm just using very practical examples without getting into the very deeply philosophical and epistemic questions. I'm using very basic examples to demonstrate that decolonization here then says, actually, yes, for instance, for the people who are living the cosmopolitan lives, the app that gets the, the, the toy car from Amazon to your home is quite convenient and is innovation. However, what about the kid who's sitting out there who's got to be able to have the mathematical skill and calculation to be able to construct this vehicle, who's got to have the ingenuity to source the resources in terms of how the hell they construct this vehicle in the first instance, and who's got to maintain that vehicle because as you're driving it around, your little kind of rubber band that steers your vehicle is going to wear out. So you're going to have to find another rubber band. And rubber bands are not that freely available in local communities. So you think about slingshots and where to get all of that kind of stuff. That is innovation. And what we're thinking about as decolonial scholars is to say, how do we bring that knowledge in such that when I find a kid who comes from Guadalangueswa, for instance, here in KZN, 
who comes from those communities and is sitting in my lecture theater, that they are able to recognize themselves in the work that I am teaching. Because if I'm going to say to them, create an app for me, do robotics, do this, do that, do the other thing. And again, robotics is now being introduced into our basic school system. And we're not necessarily thinking about that particular knowledge that those kids from rural areas will have, because when they meet this knowledge in the science lab at a Wits University, at a UJ, at a a fancy school somewhere in South Africa, that particular knowledge is going to be disregarded or they're not going to be able to make those links. And yet, in fact, some kids do make those links. And again, that's another level of innovation for me. And it's to say, how do we break down the barriers to be able to recognize the value and contributions of knowledges that come from different spaces? That's the decolonial move, such that we are able to drive ingenious innovation that can draw from all of these different knowledge sets to really drive a thriving and vibrant economy, not only for ourselves as South Africans, but for the subcontinent as well as the African continent as a whole. And for me, that's where the link comes in is to say, let's allow different perspectives to illumine how we're thinking about certain questions um, and how we're responding to certain social problems. Yeah. I really like that, Siseko, and, and the teacher in you has used really good examples to be able to grasp and if not see um, a, a practical side of, of what can be quite philosophical and, and systemic as you described. And and I'm, I'm liking also how you're bringing in the higher education space in quite a personal level of your students in your class, you know, and how do you deal with that particular way of being and that particular um views on innovation or, or, or lived experience that can then be leveraged for other aspects of learning. And I want to come back to a question that you'd, you'd sent through um, around for, in preparation for this podcast, which was around decolonization, um, questioning the use of decolonization in higher education governance, and, and wondering whether or not it allows us new insights as, as, as we put forward, or if it's just another administrative function that has been institutionalized. And, and I, want, I want to really get a good sense of your thoughts on this um, because I feel like it, it, it positions itself right at the core of what, of what your, your, your topic that you've brought here today for discussion. So, so please, please let me know about the, the two different points that you, you may consider in this space. So, and again, I'm going to go back to this particular example that I've used, um, you know, of, of, of the role of innovation in higher education and the decolonial turn. So if, in my assessment, if decolonization is not an administrative function, whereby we're just ticking boxes and we're trying to, you know, sell ourselves as the leading university on the African continent, whereas actually maybe we're not, right? If it's not just a tick, a tick box function, I think it is going to be drawing from those lived experiences of those students, of those learners. If it isn't, on the other hand, it becomes this lofty kind of ideas, and I'm, and I'm sorry to, to, to be crude here, but it becomes a, pro, a project of intellectual masturbation. What do I mean by that? I mean, we, and, and, and I find this to be a problem, Carla, in the sense of how I see many of our intellectuals thinking. If you think about the reality of how many of us are in the cosmopolitan spaces, especially as black folk, right? Because I don't think there are any white folk out in the rural areas unless they're farmers. But 
if you think about black folk who are living in urban in urban settlements who are living the cosmopolitan life we tend to think and fix our gaze in very real terms on northern problems on western questions and we forget that the majority of our people are actually located in rural south africa the largest provinces in this country are rural provinces limpopo kzn the eastern cape northwest right these have huge huge populations that are rural populations and what we've tended to do because i don't know maybe ali amazri calls it a cultural schizophrenia because of the cultural schizophrenia that we're experiencing we tend to forget about our research and our questions addressing those problems and i think for me this is one of the reasons why a lot of the work that i've focused on in recent years has appealed to what i have termed the black archive because i believe not even i believe there's knowledge credible credible knowledge that has been developed by so many incredible black intellectuals in indigenous knowledges and in indigenous languages here in south africa i'm thinking of mazisi kunene william wellington kopa sk mkai nonsizim kweto noni jabavu john tengo jabavu you know i can i can i can cite so many of them uh, if you think about mage mafuze if you think about herbert romo if you think about osbusiso nyembezi there are so many benedict villagazi there are so many black intellectuals who have developed knowledge in this country in our local and indigenous languages and yet as intellectuals when i find myself at the university of pretoria i am now thinking of decolonization and decolonial questions using very highly convoluted knowledge and language that no longer speaks to the lived experiences and the language that the everyday kzn rural community can understand i'm speaking concepts of ontology i'm speaking phenomenological subjectivity i'm speaking epistemology i'm speaking all of these concepts that come from certain communities who are addressing their lived realities whom gave us these concepts right and and i wonder if if we're going to say decolonization is responsive indeed it's it's it and it's not necessarily merely an administrative function i believe but i should ask the question of how is political governance and political organizational structures for instance functioning in rural economies because don't forget in rural economies in rural societies we have a dual system where you have the democratic system as well as traditional authorities and traditional leaders how is how are those two systems coexisting how what is the language what is the political language of negotiation that exists in those communities what are the tensions that exist in those communities how do i understand those tensions having now imbibed all of this knowledge that comes from the west around political economy around questions of despotism around questions of fascism around democracy etc etc how do i articulate as a black scholar who is deeply rooted in isizulu for instance how do i articulate the concept of democracy for my grandmother for my great grandmother for my cousins nieces nephews for my sisters for instance who don't necessarily participate 
in the kind of knowledge economy that I participate in. But the ideas that I have that I think possibly could change, radically change and transform their lives. So I think for me that the, the question of decolonization as being as as being institutionalized through serving a functional process, institutional functional process, I think the problem there is that we tend to forget that our work needs to service the local needs of our community, serving the democratic dispensation of South Africa. And that democratic dispensation of South Africa is not only 10 million people. It's not only 15 million people. It's going to 60 now. And, 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 and the vast majority of that 60 million are not necessarily in Cape Town. They're not in Durban. They're not in Pretoria. They're not in Johannesburg. They're not in Gabecha. Those people are living, for instance, Engel. How are we reaching out to those people who are in those local communities who, in fact, would say, yes, we understand or this particular knowledge that you've developed responds to our needs? How are we reaching out to those people? And I think a lot of us, black and white academics and intellectuals, have been blind to those questions. Wow. Saseko, thank you. I feel that you are touching on such necessary dialogues that are not often given enough of a platform or an amplification. And part of this entire podcast series is to amplify your voice and to amplify what you see as pertinent to our creation and development of South Africa. And on that point, I want to, I want to probe you a little bit further as we close off our, our podcast episode with you. I'm sure the first of many, because you really have some insightful points that I'd love to keep on the table. How would you describe your vision for South Africa? And I know it's a broad topic and I know that it, 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 it can lend itself many different ways, but particularly to education. How would you describe your vision for education in South Africa? I think it's quite a simple one. Um, and yes, the question is broad, but I think my response can be a bit simple, can be simple, maybe, possibly. Um, but for instance, as I say, I, I, I did my pre-formative training at Maritzburg College um, from standard six to matric. Um, and then I did my, my formative training at Rhodes University. Um, and one of the questions that has always bugged me is, it's a historical question, of course, but why have we allowed that historical reality to persist in, demo, in, in a democratic society? That I, as a kid who went to Maritzburg College, saw, came out of Maritzburg College seeing the world in so many interesting ways. And in many respects, I would even dare to, to venture the opinion that in me coming out of college, seeing the world in different ways was because I had people like Werner Koch who said to me, you are curious. How do we cultivate that curiosity? Because there are some boys who didn't necessarily have the likes of Werner Koch and whose experiences of Maritzburg College necessarily meant that they only saw the world in very westernized and very rigidified ways, right? So how do we <clears throat> make sure that a kid who goes to Maritzburg College versus a kid who goes to, say, for instance, a Metlogazulu, although even Metlogazulu itself, you know, gives Maritzburg College a run for its money. I want another school in mind, and, and I'm forgetting the schools in Maritzburg now. Um, but how do we make sure, for instance, that a kid who attends a quintile five school comes out of the system with the same kinds of experiences, 
worldview and image for South Africa as a kid who comes from a quintile one school. And here, this is where the work of Professor Jonathan Janssen has been very critical because Prof. Janssen has been asking us, pushing us, pushing the Department of Education, basic education in this country, and even this whole science system in this country, because I think even that bridge between basic education and higher education is a bit of a problematic one because the kid who's in a grade three class will one day be a professor, whether it be a professor of philosophy, a professor of physics, a professor of microbiology, that kid comes from the system in grade three. And so we need to see the basic education system as a scientific system in itself, in and of itself. So how do we make sure that each and every single one of these people who are in the system, number one, are retained in the system and, and, and are not necessarily chucked out of the system because of the dysfunctionalities that the system might have, um, and, and, and giving everybody the same opportunity. And, I, and, and so I suppose, yes, the question is, it's, it's, you, you say it's, it's a vague question and, and it's a big question. I don't think it's a vague question. I think it's a big question. And I say to you that my response might be simple. And I think maybe I was lying to both of us in that because I think the task is quite a big one. And here the task is, is a task of really realizing the function of education and the role of education in our country which is to say that in a democratic society, everybody should have equal opportunity. And this, for me, brings up the question of how do we allow private schools in South Africa to continue? Because in subtle ways, that continues to entrench the historical differences and challenges of our past. And what do I mean by that? The kids who can afford education that comes from the likes of Hilton College, Michael House, Maritzburg College, Glenwood, etc. The kids who can afford that have a far better setup than the kids who come from quintile one schools. And I don't think that's fair because the dice in life fall in particular directions. And that's, that ought not to be a burden that's carried by a generation of people who are supposed to be leading the country to a much more richer democratic dispensation. And, and we are, in, are complicit in perpetuating that system by continuing these differences and inequalities. Now, I don't have a solution to say, should we abolish private education in this country? Yada, yada, yada. I think that's a simplification of the matter because I think it's much more systemic and much more problematic. And subsequently, I guess, and just in summing up so that I don't, you know, run run around in circles here. In summing up, I think my vision would be for the department, for the Ministry of Basic Education in South Africa to have a clearly articulated vision that draws from the curiosity of our learners from whatever background and does not thwart the imaginations of our children. Because I think... At the age of 26, finding myself reading for a PhD, having done the work that I have done, entrenched in the South African scientific system at such a young age, that was because I found opportunities where my imagination was unlocked, nourished, and cherished. And so the simple answer for today would be to say, my vision is a system, a basic education ministry that cultivates, nourishes, 
and enriches the imaginations and curiosities of our children so as to unlock their innovative skills and abilities such that they can effectively participate and contribute not only to the economy, but to our cultural communities and society in general. Beautiful. Thank you, Siseko. And that brings us to the end of our, our episode of uh, the Jake's Cable Distinguished Fellowship podcast. Um, and I thank you, Siseko, for your time. And there will be subsequent ways for people to get in touch with you via this, this podcast if they have any questions or any further topics that they might want to chat through with you. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day, Siseko. Thank you.